Gary asked me a couple of months back, he said, Steve, would you like to preach? And I said, yeah. He said, uh, would you like to preach in March or April? And I said, man, let me have March. <clears throat> and so he said, okay, fine. And uh, then he told me what the passage of Scripture was. And I went and started reading it, and I went, oh, man. April's looking awfully good. Yeah, I was looking. You know, have you ever read Jude, the first part of Jude, and he says something like this? Man, I was looking forward to writing to you because I was wanting to talk about our common salvation. And he's so excited about that. He goes, I can't talk about that right now. I've got to talk about something more urgent. So I feel a little bit like that this morning. It's like there's, there's an urgent word that I believe that the Lord has for us this morning. And as Jerry said, we are continuing in this series, Jesus is Superior in All Things. So what I'd like for you to do with me this morning, if you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to start reading there, and then we'll pray. Hebrews 5.11, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and the faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and of the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss. They are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed, and in the end it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, your words are words of eternal life. And what we've read here this morning is words filled with your spirit and filled with life. Your word is quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates. Lord, I ask that your word this morning would penetrate our hearts, our lives. It would arrest our attention. And accomplish that which you've intended for it to accomplish. Let it judge the thoughts and the intents of our heart this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, you know, it's probably happened. It's happened to me. I'm thinking it's probably happened to you. If you're a parent or if you're a grandparent. And it may look a little bit different. 
But as our kids are growing up, we instruct our children what they can do to not get lost. Like, stay close to me when we go in the store. Don't run around. We instruct them what to do if they do find themselves lost. Such as, be still. Be still. Stay where you're at. And then we promise, I will find you. I will come to you. Now, it's interesting that in our lives, at least Pam's in my life, a number of years ago, we went to Epcot. And if you want to talk about a tough place to get your kid lost, Epcot would probably qualify. And so Renee was about five years old, and Pam, being the smart mom she is, when we went to Epcot, she noticed that a lot of the workers were dressed in red shirts. And Pam had given them teachings and instruction when we would go to a store, stay close, stay near. If you get lost, be still. We're going to come find you. But she noticed this day that everybody had red shirts. And she said, if you find yourself lost, find a red shirt and stay with them. And we will come find you. Not thinking that that would happen. The next thing we know, with grandparents around, and in a busy sea of people at Epcot, we're looking for Renee, and we can't find her. And we're in one building, and then we go to another building trying to find her. Sure enough, we see Renee on the top of somebody's shoulders with a red shirt. And we found her. Now, here's the deal. As much as it is in our heart to be able to hope that our children will not get lost. The resolve of the little kid's heart is, it's not that I want to get lost. It's not that I want to be lost. It's not that we wipe out with our instruction the impossibility of being lost. It's there. But what we're doing as parents is we're promising them, we are going to find you. So it is possible that Renee could get lost, and she did. You know, this morning, God makes the same promises to us also. He is fully capable of keeping them. But those promises do not say that there's something in us or something about us that makes it impossible for us to be lost. They do, however, say that there is something about God and his promise that means we will not be lost. The warnings are very real. And are part of God's means of keeping us safe. The author of Hebrews is going to take time in the passage that we just read. And he offers encouragement. But he also offers warnings. Now why does he do that? Why does he do that in such a short span of scriptures? Give us both encouragement and warnings. The answer is very simple. Because we need both. We need the warnings and we need the encouragement. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11, right after introducing the fact that Christ is a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, the author stops almost in mid-sentence and tells the audience, at least some of them had not grown up. Therefore, they needed to be taught all over again the elementary things, things that they should have learned earlier. Not growing up can have some serious consequences. And there were some warnings that they needed to hear, some in that congregation that was gathered. You know what? 
That congregation is a whole lot like our congregation today. Some need encouragement. Some need warnings. And in this case, in this situation, the scripture verse that we've just read from, there is a various strong warning, a very strong warning that he gave. Indeed, these are some of the strongest, probably the strongest warning in all of Hebrews and maybe in the New Testament. When you read a text like what we read this morning, probably some questions are quickly going to erupt in your mind. Questions like, am I in danger of falling away? Or have I fallen away? In order to answer some of that, there's four questions, four subsets of questions that we'd like to look at today from our text. Number one, who are these people that are in danger of falling away? Number two, how do I not repeat what they did? What are the better things that the author is speaking of? And fourth, and what do we hope? So, number one, who are these people that are in danger of falling away? where we're told in verse 4 through 5 that these are those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. And first, church, it's very important that you know right now at the beginning when we start to look at these four questions that those described here are not the audience to whom the author is writing. For in verse 9, he says, clearly he's convinced of better things among them than this. The people described here in verses 4 through 6 are placed here before this congregation. He's writing to them as a warning of a possible condition that they may find themselves, and if they are not careful, if they do not heed the warning, then there's a problem. But as of yet, the author is clearly using this warning to prevent them from ever becoming those people who fall away. There's a lot of debate over these verses. If you've been in a church for any length of time, you've probably heard some of those debates. And we've got to admit, some of these verses are complex. Some say that these verses prove people can fall away that are really saved. That they backslide and then are no longer saved. Others say that it is purely hypothetical and could never happen because if someone is already saved, they could never truly fall away because Christ will not let them. However, all of those questions distract from the text because they're not the questions that the audience is asking, nor do the author seem to be concerned with those. If someone is saved, and we do believe, that they will never fall away. But that is not true because they have something within themselves that prevents their falling away. When I think of my daughter, Renee, who was over at, at Epcot, there was nothing within her that prevented her from falling away. But there was a determination in my wife's heart and mine to be able to find her. So there's, when we, when we look at this passage of Scripture, if someone is saved, we do believe that they'll never fall away. But that's not true because they have something within themselves that prevents their falling away. It's only true because God will never let that happen. So a believer can never say, 
I can do whatever I want because it's impossible for me to fall away. Rather, as the author writes in chapter 3, verse 14, we know we have come to share in Christ. Wouldn't that be nice to know? How do we know if we've come to share in Christ? And he's going to answer this question for us. We know that we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firm to the very end. We firmly hold to Christ for he is our only security against falling away. All true believers will indeed be saved, but it may be well that they are saved by warnings such as these. To suggest that warnings such as these are invalid because it's impossible for a believer to fall away does disjustice. It's to cut something out of the New Testament and thereby remove from another person the very thing intended to rescue them and keep them. Who are these that are in danger of falling away? Well, the author is going to provide us with an illustration in the context of this passage. In verse 7 and 8, and it helps us understand what's going on in their lives and what they need to be aware of. Read verse 7 and 8 with me. Land that drinks in the rain often falls on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. He's using a geographical illustration for us today. These believers have had a lot of rain falling on them being exposed to Christ Jesus, the teachings about our Lord. The true believer is like the land which drinks in the rain and brings forth useful vegetation, and it's blessed by God. They have a lot of good reasons to bear fruit. The land, however, that bears thorns and thistles is not bearing fruit as one would expect if the Spirit of God was dwelling inside of them. You'd expect fruits of the Spirit, wouldn't you do? Again, this warning is a means by which they will, if indeed they are saved, will change their ways and they will begin to bear fruit. But not everybody responds this way. Some never bear fruit. I'm sure you can think of some of your own examples that you may draw in from Scripture. Here's a couple of examples that I thought of during this past week. People who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the goodness of the Holy Spirit, tasted of the powers of the age to come, and they did not respond. Here's a few examples, and I think Judas would be a primary one that we would all understand. Was Judas sort of hanging around the goodness of the Word of God, the very Word of God himself speaking life? Was, wasn't he? So Jesus sends out his disciples to go out into the land and to, to preach the gospel. And to come back and give a report. He sent out 72 of them. Judas was among them. And when they came back, they said to Jesus, Lord, wow, powerful things happened in your name. The gospel was preached. Demons were cast out in your name. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. He was undone. Except in your case, Judas. Was that Jesus' commentary? No. Judas was part of the ones who had heard the good word of God, who were teaching the word of God, casting out demons, and yet he never 
was walking in faith towards God. You can be around the powers of the age to come. You can taste the goodness of the word of God. And he did not respond. I think of another passage in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. It wasn't a genuine conversion. And what of those who hung around Jesus? Just, hey, it was a cool thing to hang around him. We could go from city to city. We could go from village to village. And, man, food's going to be provided for us. We're going to be able to have fish and lunch and dinner. And he's going to take care of us. And then when Jesus says what the cost of discipleship is, I need to eat my body, drink my blood. As soon as he begins to talk about the cost of discipleship, those who have eaten manna from heaven turned away and the Bible says they stopped following him think about the children of Israel themselves who the author's been talking about in in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and he's been telling the congregation not to imitate those that were in the wilderness that wilderness uh, congregation because of their unbelief Those are the children of Israel out there in the wilderness. You know what? They got to taste some pretty cool powers of the age to come. Not only did they see the miracles, but they were participants in those miracles. When they walked on dry land through the Red Sea. Their enemies, which would do them harm without lifting a finger of their own. God would destroy their enemies. They ate the bread and manna from heaven. They shared in the Holy Spirit. There was a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night to be able to guide them. They tasted of the powers of the age to come. And even with all of this, being this close to God, being delivered out of bondage from Egypt, they failed to enter the promised land. And so we find the writer frequently encouraging this congregation of the Hebrews to whom he writes to not be as the congregation in the wilderness and to go on and to enter into God's eternal rest by laying hold of that which God had appointed to them, which is Christ Jesus, who is our treasure above all things. These are examples of those who have been enlightened, those who've tasted the good word of God, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, powers of the age to come, but they did not respond. The second question we want to look at today is how do I not repeat what they did? How do we remain diligent in what we hope for so that our hope may be fully realized? And that's a good question. So let's look back at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. And right before we get there on the way, I want to remind you that the writer in chapter 2 says, we must, how, how do we not be like them? The writer says, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. How do we not repeat what that congregation did and are in danger of doing? Pay the most careful attention to what we've heard. Were they, were they doing that? Well, let's, let's read. Verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In 5.11, he tells them, you got a hearing problem. 
The NIV will translate that as you no longer try to understand. Sounds like they were hardening their hearts to the word of God, doesn't it? Their hearing problem wasn't the result of some kind of anatomical malady that had happened to them. There wasn't a malfunction or injury in their ear. It was an acquired hearing problem. You no longer try to understand. They were sluggish in the ears. It was an acquired position. It's not that they were intellectually slow. It's not that the material that was being presented by the instructor, by the teacher, by the pastor was hard to follow. It wasn't that the pastor or the teacher had difficulty in communicating the truth, but they themselves put the brakes on learning and developed a eh, couldn't care less attitude. Some were drifting, falling back. And in chapter 10, we learned that some had stopped attending worship or at best had some spotty, unengaged attendance at church. He exhorts them to not forsake the assembling of themselves together as a matter of some were, but some were possibly drawn to church for other reasons. There's some cool things to be about, you know, around a church. Got a great worship band. There's some good fellowship that I get to have with people who think a whole lot like I think. They have interest in some of the same areas that I have interest in. And all those are good things, but it's not a mark of saving faith. It become easy to not attend. Dull of hearing. Oh, I've heard that before. Yeah, I've, I've heard that about Jesus before. I heard it before. Did stir up in them the way that used to stir up in them. Ah, I got other things to do. I need to give attention to. So I won't be there at church for a while. They become dull in their hearing and they stop trying to understand. So let me give you a picture here, a word picture to help you. When you look at this word that he's talking about, dull of hearing, it's the same word that's translated in chapter 6, verse 12, where he said that they had become lazy. Let me give you a word picture for this. And the culture that this was spoken to, Greek culture would understand this, this word picture. It is that of the numbed limbs of a sick lion. A lion in this condition, he's able to stand up as the king of the jungle, unable to rise up on his paws and move about with freedom. And this was an indication of his sickness. The marks of being a new creation in Christ for the Hebrews and for us is that Christ is our treasure. And for some, this was lacking in this congregation. Some are letting go. They're walking away. They're drifting. Others are being tempted to let go of Christ to draw back. They're not going on. Some were not going on. And he says, you should have been teachers by now. But they weren't growing in word and in grace. They were babes. They were infants still on milk. Not only did they have a hearing problem, but they had a dietary insufficiency. Their stomachs couldn't handle solid food. So they lacked the nutrients that came from what the author called constant use and training of themselves in the word of God to be able to distinguish Good from evil. We need to be able to distinguish good from evil, don't we? 
90% of the things that happen to us during the day, some decisions that we have to make, don't come from direct commandments of God. Yes, certainly, we're to do everything in love. I don't need to be able to discern when God makes a commandment that I'm not supposed to love my neighbor's wife. <laughs> that doesn't take any discernment. It just means following his command, doing as he's commanded. But he's encouraging them to be imitators, to go after solid food, which by its constant use would help them discern good from evil for the other 90% of the things that we deal with from day to day. They were stunted in their growth because they became dull in their hearing and could not or would not move on. Always babes, when they should have been teachers, is not a mark of holding fast or taking hold of the hope that we read about earlier. Let's move for a second. The author's going to transition us in verse number 9. Where the author is going to move into encouragement now. He's persuaded of better things in the majority of the believers in this congregation. Note now that as he makes his transition, he doesn't withdraw his warning that we've just read about. But what he does, he frames this transition in such a way to spur them on to pursue and inherit the promises of God. Read with me verses 9 through 10. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your works and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. So what are the better things that the author is speaking of? Well, the better things are such things as faith, inheriting the promises, Loving God's name by loving his people. These are the things that have to do with salvation that he's speaking of in verse number 9. One of the better things that he's talking about is observable. It's palpable. It can be seen with the human eye and it feels like God himself giving us a direct blessing to the one who receives it. And it's the love that you show to God by helping his people and continue to help. And i got to tell you, this help, this continue to help, this help that they gave, it came with a cost, a deep cost. It hit the pocket. It really hit the pocket for some. Some of this church have suffered the plundering of their own goods and the confiscation of their property in helping the saints. And in the face of this loss, they remained faithful to Christ and continued to help. The writer says that for this better thing, that God has taken notice of them and that God is not unjust. He will not overlook your work and the love which you've shown to the saints. Can I ask you, what, what motivates that kind of giving? Kind of mo- what, what motivates this kind of giving that you would joyfully suffer plundering? <laughs> I don't know about for you, but that's not natural for me to joyfully suffer plundering. There's only one reason. And the author gives it to us in chapter 10, verse 33 through 35. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. 
At other times, you stood side by side with those who were treated such. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Why? Why would they embrace that type of suffering joyfully? Verse 34 gives us the answer. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. It's one of the better things the writer is speaking of concerning salvation. They had their eyes set on better possessions. What do you get for this type of perseverance? For holding fast in this manner, you get him. You get him. That's the goal. In just a little while, he who is coming will come, and he will not delay. That is the ultimate end. That's the ultimate end. Him. We get him. And as Jesus said, he that endures to the end shall be saved. Another better thing they evidenced was diligence. Look with me at verse 11 and 12. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So what's been promised? That's a good question. Glad you guys asked that this morning. What is the promise? And what do we hope? The writer says that this hope gives us confidence. Great encouragement, he tells us in verse 18. Because God has promised, he's taken an oath, and he's sworn by himself. Because there was nothing greater that he could swear by. When you swear by something, you're always supposed to swear by something bigger than you, better than you. We don't swear by, hey, I swear by my cat, I'm going to follow through and do what you said I was going to do. Or I don't swear by your smelly gym shorts that we're going to, I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. You swear by something greater. And because God could swear by nothing greater than himself, he said, I, God, swear by God, I will equip you with every good thing for doing his will. And because of the blood of Jesus, my son, I will work in you what is pleasing in my sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why take an oath? Well, it wasn't for God. It was for us. God didn't need to swear for himself. I promise to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, help me, God. God didn't need to do that. God doesn't lie. He swore by an oath for this reason. Start with me in verse 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what had been promised. He confirmed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things. What are those unchangeable things? The first thing was the promise that he made to Abraham. Abraham, if you listen to me, if you follow my word, if you come out and you follow me, I will multiply you. I will make your descendants as great as the sands of the sea. Promise number one. 
Abraham got a little weak. Took a while. Took several decades and still, ah, no child yet. And he goes to God and says, hey, Lord, you remember that descendant that you promised me? And God says, I want to come through. And he swore an oath right then by two unchangeable things. One is promised to Abraham and second, his oath to Abraham that he swore by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold, to take hold, to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. That song that we sang this morning, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You know, most anchors go down into the sea to try to help keep a ship or a boat in place. And some of them do a relatively good job unless there's like some titanic shifts that happen below the sea. It's supposed to stop a ship from drifting. But this anchor, this anchor doesn't go down. This anchor goes up. And it goes up into the heavenlies of heavenlies. Where Jesus, our forerunner, has entered on our behalf. And he's become a high priest forever interceding for you and I, presenting us faultless before the Father after the order of Melchizedek, but better than Melchizedek. This hope is an anchor for our soul. It's firm and it's secure, and it's made possible by the blood of the eternal covenant in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I hope you don't get mad at me. Because I'm about to conclude. You've heard the story of the preacher who said, Okay, lastly today, and he just last and last and last. Well, today, I'm concluding. I'm concluding with this. Church, you build your house upon this rock, Christ Jesus. And though the tides come and the floods will come against you, like these who have been suffering loss of property, had their goods confiscated, You build your house upon this rock, Christ Jesus. And when the floods come, your house will stand. It will not fall. Be diligent so that what you hope for may be fully realized. And now concluding this morning, I want to conclude with the way the author concludes in chapter 13. May the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant, who brought back from the dead Jesus, our Lord, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good thing for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, take hold of that hope.